Well, good morning. I hope that you all are, are doing well this morning. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're coming to a close in 1 Peter. Next week, we'll actually finish 1 Peter, and then we will begin 2 Peter. Starting chapter 5 last week, we dealt with the church elders, the elders who are eldering and shepherding these church members in Asia Minor who were suffering. We, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we saw how elders are to be shepherding, how they are to be shepherding under Christ, they are to be shepherding like Christ and shepherding to the glory of Christ. And then we got to verse 5, where Peter turns his attention from the elders to, to the church, to the rest of the church. And he says in verse 5, so 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So church members, young and old, are to subject and to submit themselves under the authority of the elders that God has placed over them who are shepherding them. But the verse goes further. We talked a little bit about this last week, that it goes further because he now says, all of you clothe yourselves. So put the clothes on of humility. Put the clothes on of humility. We said last week that humility is like the oil in the engine of the church that keeps things running smoothly. Remove humility in just one member and watch the heat build up. Watch parts begin to fail. Watch relationships that will go cold and divisions that spring up and how the gospel will be put into the back seat while pride takes its place. That's not good. It's not good because of the axiom, the biblical axiom that Peter gives us that runs throughout all of Scripture. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that this is the great theme, one of the great themes of Scripture, and that is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It runs throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. This morning, we're going to continue with this very basic Christian truth of humility. Why does humility seem so difficult? Why does humility toward one another sound so much better on paper and in talk than it actually feels in practice? This morning... Our passage gets to the heart of humility and pride. And as the church, we want to be humble. We should have a desire to be humble because, once again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand 
of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's where we're stopping this morning. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. The main point of these two verses, including verse 5, is humility. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure that one out. It's right there. The first exhortation in verse 1, humble yourselves. The active imperative of humbling yourself. Once again, we said earlier, we want to be humble. The desire for Christians is to be humble. So that really isn't the problem, right? Desire isn't the problem. There is something that's much deeper. That's the problem. And the problem is what runs deep within us, and that is pride, right? So we, we want to kind of not necessarily talk about the world right now. We want to talk about ourselves, how pride runs deep within all of us. The great pioneering missionary to India in the 18th century, William Carey, worked diligently for decades with little resources, with little support, with very few breaks, with much difficulty and suffering. For a lifetime, he worked to take the gospel to, to people groups who have never heard the gospel, to now where there is a legacy that still exists because of the work that the Lord gave him in India. He worked to translate the whole Bible and parts of the Bible into 42 different languages or dialects. Anyone else come close to anything like that? Yet, in one, of the le one letter that he wrote to his son on his 70th birthday, this is what he said. He said, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness, though on a review of my life I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the, in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor as I sought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now, and, and, and am still retained in his work. I trust for acceptance with him to the blood of Christ alone. That's William Carey. Is there something wrong with William Carey in saying these things? Did he not suffer enough? Or is he just suffering from low self-esteem or some morbid self-introspection? He believed he didn't do enough or he has done too little and that his sins continue to be innumerable. But we also see his reliance. We see his confidence. We see his assurance that is in the finished work of Christ, to which we would all agree that that is where salvation lies, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What Carey understood, however, 
is that even in his heart, even decades of Christian ministry and faithfulness to Christ, that the sin of pride still runs very deep. Can you name any part of society today where humility is popular or promoted? TV shows, movies, music, definitely not sports, psychology, speeches, company core values, whatever it may be. The worship of self, self-identity, and self-acceptance is the highest virtue, and that is pride. Go to a bookstore and look up self-help books, and I challenge you to find one that does not say something, that does not say something that are along the lines of you just need to accept yourself more or love yourself more. Books on humility are very much in short supply, along with other things. We do not have, we not only have pride that runs deep within us, brothers and sisters, but it is the current that we swim in. It is the current of culture. And it's not just culture of today, it's the culture of humanity since Genesis chapter 3. This passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, although short, shows us the exact opposite of our times, but as Christians, it's showing us what is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. Because if we fail to have gospel humility toward one another, if we fail to have uh, humble uh, humility toward the Lord, it, and it does not take root in our lives, then how do we expect to be salt or light in a very darkened and tasteless world? And hardly could we call ourselves Christians if we are not humble. To understand the full force of this passage, I want to do two things. And first, I want us to talk for a while on pride, and then we will get to humility. So first, to understand humility and what this passage is requiring of us, I think we should have a firm grasp on what is the opposite of humility, and that is pride. And in doing so, I want to give you 10 biblical observations about pride. And I picked these up from, from John Piper, and I think these are so helpful. The first one is this. Pride is self-satisfaction. Pride is self-satisfaction. And in Hosea 13, the Lord said to Israel, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no salvation. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. Israel had abundance. Israel had the blessings of the Lord, all these great gifts that that God had given them. Their crops were plenty. Their flocks were full and they were healthy. Their bellies were full. Their hearts and their minds were entertained. And yet it led them to forget the Lord. The Lord who had given them all those good gifts to be reminders of his goodness and his love. 
And what pride does is it makes us self-satisfied. And to forget the one who has given us the gifts, but to be more satisfied in the gifts themselves. Second, pride is self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Before Hosea, Moses warned Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 not to forget the Lord who had delivered them. He says, "Take care lest you forget the Lord by your forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, be aware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Pride with abundance, brings self-satisfaction, but it also brings self-reliance. To say, look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look how I have made myself. How I have bettered myself. What we see here is how pride takes the blessings of God and turns it into self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Man says, why do I need God when I have a home, when I have a truck, when I have a new boat, when I have a beach house, and when I have a full bank account? Keep building barns. Third, pride considers itself above instruction. This is where Israel once again failed over and over again, rejecting God's word. In Jeremiah 13, the Lord said, Even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuses to hear my word, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. Pride says, I do not need God's word. I do not need God's word. I don't need instruction. Essentially, pride says, I am my own truth. We've never heard that before. Fourth, pride is insubordinate. When God's commands are spoken, the insubordinate in their pride harden their hearts, stiffen their necks, and turn from them and live according to their own truth. Psalm 119.21 says, You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commands. Fifth, pride takes credit for what God does alone. One of the, most, one of the more explicit stories in the Bible that illustrates this very idea comes from Daniel chapter 4, where King Nebuchadnezzar After conquering all the lands that he could, he was delighted and he boasted in his greatness, in the greatness of Babylon. And he stood outside his castle looking over all of his kingdom and he said, 
for the glory of my majesty. And what's amazing is in that very moment, the Lord God himself spoke to him and took away his kingdom by taking away his life. He turned him into a beast, to act like a beast. He was still in human form, but he walked around like a beast on four legs and ate the grass, ate the trees, ate the fruits of the ground like a beast, like an ox. And for this period of humiliation, for years, until Nebuchadnezzar finally recognized the Lord. He recognized the Lord, and he honored the Lord, and he praised him as the king of heaven. You see, the heart of man and pride will take what God has accomplished and what God has given us and use it to give credit to ourselves instead of giving glory to him. This is the greatest problem, I believe, with man. Because in our sin, our great sin, as Romans 1 says, we fail to honor God and give thanks to him. Six. Pride exalts in being made much of. <clears throat> Pride exalts in being made much of. Jesus told us in Matthew 23, he gives, he gives these seven woes about the scribes and the Pharisees. And it wasn't just about, the, uh, about them. It was like to them. They were there. Let me tell you what God thinks of you. Scribes, Pharisees, and in verse 6 he says, And they, Pharisees and scribes, love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Pride exalts in being made much of. Because pride wants the attention. Pride wants the accolades. Pride wants to receive the applause and the adulation and the, and, the, and the praise. Pride needs to be recognized. Find a prideful person who has not been recognized and see how they respond when they are not due, when they are given the due praise and the due recognition. They cry like babies. They take their jerseys off and they throw them in the stands. That's what they do. Pride needs to be recognized. Pride needs to be exalted and made much of. Seventh, pride aspires to be in the place of God. Now, was this not essentially the first temptation? Eat this and you will be like God. But pride wants to go further. Pride doesn't want to be equal with God. Pride wants to be God. Pride wants to be God. In Acts chapter 12, when Herod was seeing some people that he wasn't very happy with at that time, those people were smart. They came in, and they didn't just come in uh, begging for mercy. They came in declaring, Herod, your voice is the voice of God. Your voice is not of man. Your voice is the voice of God. And Herod, he enjoyed that. Herod enjoyed the praise. And worst of all, he believed it. I am. Look what I've done. Look at my kingdom. Look how people who I am angry with come in and worship me. 
I am God. But in verse 23 of Acts chapter 12, we see what happens to this very lesser God. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his laugh. That's a pretty puny God. To be eaten by worms and breathe his laugh. Pride says, I am my own God. Pride says, I am my own authority. Pride says, I create my own worldviews. Pride says, I create my own identity. Man wants to be worshipped like God because man wants to be God. They want to be their own God. Eighth, pride opposes the very existence of God. In Psalm 10, verse 4, it says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Really, the wicked mean is, there is no God but me. There is no God but me because this is the only way in their minds they could survive such arrogance. This is the only way they can survive such arrogance is to say there is no God but me. And think about the level of arrogance a man has to have to say in their very limited and fallible scope such things as there is no God. How foolish a man has to be to say that. It would be like walking into a movie theater, into a movie for one very nanosecond and walking out and being able to declare that I know everything about this movie. I can tell you every single bit of that movie. How arrogant a man is to do that. How ridiculous and foolish we would look at a man if they came out of the movie theater saying that. How foolish is a man with such limited time and scope of space on earth. Their life is like the dew of the grass. Here now, gone in 35 seconds. But it's pride. It's pride that says there is no God. And the reason is, it's for their own survival. They say that and convince themselves of their own survival because if there is no God, then I can do what I want. I then can make my own demands upon myself and demand that of other people. Man rebels against the existence of God because of pride. Ninth, <clears throat> pride refuses to trust in God or to put it another way, pride keeps us from trusting in the Lord. Proverbs 28, 25 says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. You see, in pride, we cannot trust the Lord. It's like darkness and light. It's either darkness or there is or light. Pride cannot trust because trusting faith makes the prideful feel weak, makes them feel dependent. It's belittling to be dependent upon someone else. I, therefore, must do this on my own. The problem with 
Humility, then, to the prideful is that it lifts up the strength and the goodness of another and not the strength of the prideful. You see, and we'll get there in just a few minutes, that the core of humility, meaning there's no humility without it, is trusting in the Lord. The core of humility is trusting in the Lord. So if pride keeps us from trusting in the Lord, what then are we trusting in and relying in instead? It's got to be something. You're either trusting in the Lord or you're trusting in something. Well, one of those is trusting in our own strength, trusting in our own might, trusting in our own talents, our own abilities, in our own self-righteousness. But in reality, as life begins to hit us and eat our lunch, we begin to see that that is a very false sense of security. Another form of pride is realizing that you can't take care of yourself. And when you realize that you can't take care of yourself, you become anxious. You begin to feel the anxiety of not having the strength of being able to take care of yourself. And that is pride as well. Worry is a form of pride because when filled with anxiety, they are convinced, you are convinced, we are convinced, that they also, you must also solve the problems in your life by your own strength, and you realize you can't, and here comes anxiety. Now we're getting closer to 1 Peter 5, aren't we? And number 10, lastly, pride is anxious about the future. In Isaiah 51, the Lord confronts this very issue. He says in verse 12, I, I am he who confronts you, comforts you, excuse me, comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker? Stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all long. Because of the wrath of the oppressor, he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? You see, the Lord is asking his people, who or what are you really afraid of? Because fear can rule us. Fear of the unknown, fear of the future. What might happen or what might happen, I don't know. But what you see is that when we're prideful, then we are not trusting in the Lord and we get anxious about the future, as we see Israel did. Relying on ourselves is forgetting the Lord, our maker, who stretched out the heavens and has laid the foundations of the earth. Now I think we are ready to, ready to understand clearer why Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants the church who is suffering to be humble. Because as we have just said in summary, that pride draws us away from trusting in the Lord. It makes us self-sufficient and yet in the end still be anxious. Peter understood what it meant to be prideful. He was the disciple with bravado. He was the first to speak. He was the first to act before any other disciple. He confessed Christ. He rightly confessed Christ as the, as the, the Son of God. 
And then moments later, after Jesus told them the purpose of the coming of the Son of Man, who condescended to die and to suffer, Peter once again spoke. Oh no, Jesus, not on my watch. And of course, we know the results. Jesus said to him, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Pride. Peter boldly claimed at the Lord's table. I mean, the Lord's Supper boldly at the Lord's Supper, that he would not let anything happen to Jesus. Peter was the, one of the disciples with the misplaced confidence in himself, and he couldn't stay awake, and he couldn't stay awake to pray that night in the garden, even though Jesus told him to. And then it was Peter who pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of, his, of the servant of the high priest. But then it was Peter who not only did not stand up to defend Jesus when questioned, but he vigorously cursed and denied Jesus three times. Peter understood pride. Peter understood the danger of pride. He understood the fall of pride, the consequences of pride. Peter understood self-sufficiency. Peter understood self-satisfaction, self-reliancy of pride that gave him permission to sleep instead of praying. He understood fear and anxiousness that caused him to cower under the weight of his pride and not trust the Lord. In this passage... In these verses, there's a flow of thought from verses 6 and 7 coming out of verse 5. Saying, the younger be subject to the elders and, and everyone else, everyone clothe yourselves in humility for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We talked about that earlier. So that in all, in our, all of our relationships to one another are marked by this most basic Christian trait of humility that uh, Peter understood clearly. This is what the gospel does in the heart of a Christian. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. That is not just information that a Christian is to absorb and to know and be able to regurgitate at the right time when an elder asks you a question or when another brother says or just to throw it on to sound good. That is not just information, but that is humbling truth. It's humbling truth. Grace, although glorious and good, brothers and sisters, grace is first humbling. Grace is first humbling. The grace of God in the gospel that saves wretched, undeserved sinners. When we hear and see the grace of God, our first reaction is to be humility. When we encounter that grace, it's like when God says to Job, dress for action like a man. Where were you when I put the oceans in their place? And when we hear grace, it puts us in that place of humility. I was nowhere, God. But you, that's what grace does. Oh, Christian, are you humbled by the grace of God? Are you humbled by the humility that is brought about by the work of Christ? And then does that work itself out, seep itself out, 
ooze out onto your relationships with one another. That's what we want. That's our desire. We want it to be that way. But once again, like we said in the beginning, we have the desire, but there's a problem. And the problem is, is how are we supposed to be humble toward everyone when this pride we just unpacked is running so deep? Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Sounds good. Again, this is where we start. Humble yourselves before God, and then being a people marked with humility by grace toward one another will come after that. Again, sounds good. Sounds logical. Humility sounds good, but there's a problem. Again, here's another problem. There's that pride. And in practice, humility toward one another is still so difficult. Verse 7, let's diagnose the problem. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Pride manifests itself in the forms, brothers and sisters, like we see here in verse 7. It manifests itself in anxieties. Anxiousness is being worried. Nervous about anything or an, or an event or the future, the present, a person, or whatever it may be. Life is filled with anxieties. But what Peter is showing us here is that this pride, anxieties, subverts humility. Let me show you what I mean. And then at the end, I'll give you the cure. First, humility is seen as the threat. Humility is seen as the threat. In the passage, the real threat is identified. Even though we know the context of 1 Peter is suffering and enduring while under harsh circumstances. However, Peter doesn't say that that's the threat. Those threats are not, that's not the threat for humility. That's not why humility is so hard. It's not threats. It's not prison time. It's not a loss of job. It's not being ostracized. What he is saying is the threat is humility itself. And we have a problem with anxieties, brothers and sisters, because we have a problem with humility. The strong command in verse 6, humble yourselves, makes the command in verse 7 to casting all your anxieties on him more urgent because humility is threatening. In some translations, NIV in particular, puts a period at the end of verse 6. And it separates these, these two imperatives of verse, seven, verse 6 and verse 7. However, the, in the Greek, the way it should be translated, as what I think most of y'all have in your ESV or NESB, I'm not sure about the LBJ version. Uh, actually, I think it's right. I read, I read it on Thursday. Is that it should, as it says in the ESV, the participle casting. It should be Casting, we're not starting a new sentence, but using the participle casting, casting all your anxieties on him. And there's an important distinction that's being made. This is an important distinction because if you're going to clothe yourself in humility toward one another, verse 5, and then you're going to be humble, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, verse 6, then it is crucial that we are casting all of our anxieties upon the Lord. 
Casting all your anxieties upon him is not the last step in the process of humility. It is the very first. When required to be humble before someone and humbling yourself before God, you'll understand how necessary casting all your anxieties on him is. Second, humility creates anxieties. Humility creates anxiety. So why is humility such a threat to us that we get anxious? Well, let's think about what humility actually is. Definition of humility, according to my MacBook, is modest or a low view of oneself. Okay? Not complete. I asked this question to a few of our young men on Thursday, and one of them gave the definition that was, uh, I thought was pretty good, and it's knowing what the Bible has said about you and believing it. Knowing what the Bible has said about you and believing it, and that is having a good gospel understanding of our sin and how we are saved by grace, and then how all that is to make us humble. A low view of ourselves and a high view of God. Maybe some examples of humility would be very helpful then to understand what humility is. When you've made a mistake, when you misspeak, when you offend someone, when you've sinned against someone, humility is saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's humility. Now, I want you to just think, again, we all love that in, like in practice and logic and like, yeah, that's great. In desire, we like that. But think about how hard that actually is. Think about how hard that, that actually is at times to admit you, that you, that I am wrong. That I could be fallible. That I could be self-reliant. That I could be doing this on my own. Humility means that when you need help, you'll ask for it. How many of us have seen people who are been so stubborn in their pride, who have like destroyed themselves and whatever they were doing because they weren't asking for help? Or maybe you were that person. Humility also means doing ordinary work and tasks that need to be done. And even if no one ever sees it. Humility is spending time and caring with both people and completely indifferent to the recognition that you do not receive. In other words, humility is the risk of losing face not being noticed, or not being appreciated. Not being recognized, not going unnoticed, having to admit you're wrong is hard, and it can be painful. And in our hard hearts, we do not want to be humble in these ways. 
But that is humility. That is what humility is. And brothers and sisters, that's why we get anxious about humility. Because we do not want to be embarrassed. We do not want to be dependent. We do not want to lose face by saying, I'm sorry. We do not want to suffer in the ways that humility requires. And this is why it is hard to be humble toward one another and also to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. However, there is a cure to anxiety. The cure to anxiety that keeps us from being humble and the cure is no secret at all because it's right there in verse 6 and in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties upon him, verse 7, so that the one we are humble to, verse 6, is also the one we are casting all our anxieties upon is him. You have to first put all your anxieties confidently in the mighty hands of God. The mighty hand of God, brothers and sisters, to the prideful and to the proud, to the arrogant and to the rebellious is a very terrifying reality. But that's not what Peter's saying here. Peter's not trying to terrify us into humility. The mighty hand of God that is the picture of God's infinite holiness and power, coupled with verse 7 of his love in his care, paired together in his sovereign care and love for his people. So that we can cast all of our anxieties upon him and we can trust him because he is mighty. He cares. And that he is always acting on our behalf through his might and by his love, and by his care. That, those promises, the mighty hand of God is coupled with his love and his care for you is not terrifying, but assuring that he can be trusted. So all these anxieties about humility that we, we deal with we can freely cast upon him because he is mighty. He is mighty. That gives us confidence. So how do we do that? Well, we, we cast them upon him. Literally, casting them means to, means to throw. So it's not like, you know, casting a fishing rod and then you reel it back in or throwing a cast net and you're pulling it back in. We're not throwing those things out, seeing what we can get with our anxieties. No, we're throwing them suckers overboard to the Lord and not expecting them to come back. Casting here is literally throwing them off. You know, it's interesting. The only other time that this word casting, this participle, is used in the Bible is when the disciples went and got that donkey, you know, the unridden colt, and they, they took their garments off and they casted them on the donkey. It's the only other time this word is used. That picture should show us something. 
And we take our anxieties and we cast them upon this, this, the Lord who can bear them. He can bear our anxieties. He can, and bear, he can bear those things that we are so worried about. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We believe the promise that he cares for you. And it's as simple as that. Casting. Throw them off. And when we cast all our anxieties on him, brothers and sisters, we must be specific when we cast them. Brothers, list them out. Tell the Lord one by one. Sisters, name them and lay them out to the Lord and cast them upon the Lord. When those anxieties come upon you, cast them upon the Lord. And then trust him that he will bear them and be humble under the mighty hand of God. And even though you may cast your anxieties upon him and even though you may act humbly, things still may not go the way we want them to. But that does not mean that the Lord does not care for you. That does not mean that, that he isn't mighty, but it means that he is acting and he is working in the background in so many ways that we never could see or even consider. His care means that he will not let things go without his influence over the matter. He's always working. He's always acting in ways that we never see for, his, for our good and for his glory. And the last thing I want to say is, lastly, as you trust in the Lord and you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and you're casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you, do so then in an act, in a manner of prayer. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made unto God. How beautiful is that? Anxious about nothing, but pray. And why? does Paul make this connection between anxiousness and prayer? Because anxiousness is pride, and prayer is humility. Prayer is trusting in the Lord. Praying to, to the Lord because we know that he cares, because he is mighty. And so we can be humble and we can pray. We pray to cast off those anxieties. We pray trusting in his provision and in his care. We pray because humbly we need his mighty hand to act on our behalf and not on our own. Prayer is the response of a believer that is actively seeking humility in their life by casting all their anxieties upon the Lord because they believe what the scripture says to be true about the Lord, that his hand is surely mighty and that he cares. What's clear for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is 
continuing need to pursue humility toward one another and to be humble toward the Lord. It's good for us to know why humility seems like it's such a threat and why humility gives us anxieties. This can be tough when life is tough. But as we sang this morning, when the howling storms of fear and doubt assail, anxiety is about being humble. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. He is truly mighty and he truly cares for you. What else can I say? And all God's people say, amen. amen.